In August of 1916, after 497 days of surviving the elements in Antarctica, excuse me, in Antarctic, Ernest Shackleton rescued 28 of his men from the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. He and two ships had set out from London in 1914 in an endeavor to be the first expedition to cross the Antarctic on foot. But his ship became stuck in ice and eventually sank, forcing he and his men to survive in inhospitable climates for well over a year. Shackleton himself, with 12 of his crew, set out from the Antarctic on small dinghies to sail 800 miles to the nearest port in order to assemble a rescue team. It took Shackleton five months and four extremely hazardous attempts to rescue his men. And the tenacity of his expedition was determined beforehand when Shackleton purchased a vessel, the Polaris, and renamed it Endurance. He chose this name from his family motto, By Endurance We Conquer. This motto could well be the motto of those who follow Christ. By endurance, we conquer. God has redeemed us through the blood of Christ and set us on a lifelong race towards holiness and making him known. During that time, we're going to face hardships and challenges and setbacks, and we're possibly going to be stranded, maybe both physically and socially. This book of Hebrews is written to encourage a group of believers who are beginning to doubt the efficacy of Christ's work. They were tempted to fall back on some cultural and religious and social systems, adding them to the gospel of Christ. But the author here writes to them, encouraging them to stand firm, to run the race with endurance, and to hold fast to their faith. And by this, we too are encouraged in our struggles that by endurance in Christ, we will conquer. So before we dive into the writer's message, there's a lot of context we have to understand about Hebrews. If you're following along in the notes, we're going to call this the context of enduring faith. And then after we talk about the context, we'll look at understanding enduring faith, and finally the call of enduring faith on our lives. So for now, let's turn to the context of enduring faith. The book of Hebrews, if you've read it at all, can be kind of difficult to understand as the author addresses a lot of different concepts and ideas which are challenging to unite at first glance. First step in understanding this book is knowing who the audience is uh, so that we know how they would have read it or heard it. The audience in view is a group of Jewish converted Christians. They were still living in their old community and were undergoing persecution to turn from their new faith in Christ and go back to their cultural and religious traditions. If we go back to the beginning of Hebrews in chapter 1, 1 to 4, the writer provides a very clear thesis for us, though, that helps us understand the book. He writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The words, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, are the focal point of the author's message. They help us take all the disparate themes in the book and focus them down to this concept. That God no longer speaks to us like he used to by his prophets, priests, and the law, but now he speaks to us by his son, Christ. I think we can easily overlook this statement by his son, but we're well served by remembering this Jewish audience. They were believers who had been raised in a culture focused on the law, prophets, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system as means of obeying God, being brought to his will, and being restored to a right relationship with him. Leaving this system behind to embrace a new belief of faith in the finished work of Christ wouldn't come without any costs. 
Indeed, it's, it's evident from the book that the believers were undergoing persecution by their fellow Jews for leaving the faith. Earlier in the book, we read, Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It's understandable how the Jewish believers would be pressured to go back to their previous way of life, trying to retain the sacrificial systems and laws. In our own lives, I think we frequently struggle with the pull to go back to where we came from, previous lifestyles and habits after we've come to faith. And I think persecution only makes retreating to what we knew more tempting. But in this book, the writer is reminding the Jewish believers of the truth of who Christ is and exhorting them to endure in Christ instead of going back to what they previously knew. There's another important context to this book, and that context is the whole of Scripture. And I think this one is really interesting. So no book in the canon of Scripture stands alone by itself. And understanding how Hebrews fits into the whole Bible will help us understand it. If you could, turn back to Genesis 3 with me. If you aren't familiar with the Bible, Genesis 3 is the first book in the Bible and recounts the story uh, of the beginning of time and God's interactions with his creation. Several weeks ago, Asher preached uh, in his series on Genesis 3, 14 to 15. In this passage, we read that the serpent, who is Satan, tempted Adam and Eve to reject God's commands. That act of rebellion is called the fall and is the root of all sin and death. After the fall, Scripture records a curse against Satan in which God promises to finally defeat sin and restore creation. The Old Testament is a record of God's people looking for this promise in their kings, judges, patriarchs, prophets, priests, and religious system. But all of these fall short. We read in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Asher talked about this, but we recall that the grammar of that word offspring is singular. That is, God isn't promising he's going to restore creation communally through his people or their religious system. Rather, God is cursing the serpent by promising to restore creation by sending a singular seed, one man who will restore creation. And this idea, if you read the Old Testament, is present throughout. Most vividly in Genesis, we see that the idea that every generation, there's a child born, a man who looks like he might be this promised seed that is going to crush Satan and restore creation. But again and again, they're proven to be imperfect and sinful and mortal, just like we are. They're not the ones who are going to fulfill this promised blessing to crush the head of the serpent because they are sinners. But we as Christians believe that Christ is the fulfillment of this Genesis promise. And the author of Hebrews is trying to show us four ways in which Christ is better than anything that's come before. Now, for the sake of time, I'll only briefly address each of these, but I'd encourage you to do some study on your own. So in chapters 1 to 2, the writer shows that Christ is better than the angels. In chapters 3 to 4, the writer talks about Christ being greater than Moses, who is believed to be the greatest prophet. In chapter 4, the writer shows how Christ is better than the promised land, which offered rest to the Hebrew people from centuries of slavery and decades of wandering. Christ is a better rest than any land could offer. And then finally, in chapters 5 to 10, the author argues that Christ is greater than the entirety of the Jewish religious system, their priests, their sacrifices, their prophets, on which they had depended for their entire existence. 
So the author has spent 10 chapters arguing for the superiority of Christ, and then he moves on to practically encourage them in their persecution. Throughout this book, he encourages the Hebrew people to remember their place before God, pursue godly living, and trust in God who is faithful. The writer undergirds this encouragement in chapter 11 by providing two millennia of examples of faithful Jewish and non-Jewish believers who looked for the promised seed, and by faith in the promises of God to provide a seed, endured hardship, including even death at the hands of the enemies of God. If we look at the end of chapter 11, we see the author's conclusion. And all these, those witnesses, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, which was Christ, the promised deliverer, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The author here challenges us to remember that Christ has exceeded all that has come before him and is the final fulfillment of the law and the first promise that God ever made to a fallen world to provide a seed to crush the serpent. This is a huge encouragement as we also see faithful followers of God for millennia who have endured hardship for the promise of what was to come. Earlier in the book, again, the writer challenges us with these words. We are not those who shrink back, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. His message is clear in this book. By Christ, we endure and we conquer. So just to quickly summarize, the first 10 chapters of Hebrews are explaining why Christ is better. Chapters 11 to 12 are practical encouragement that say Christ is better. Therefore, Christian endure. And in chapter 12, the writer even focuses more and applies his theology with two main points that we'll see today. So we've talked about the context of enduring faith. Let's turn our attention to actually understanding what enduring faith is. Let's read verses 1 to 2 again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you're new to Christianity or you're a visitor or watching online, and are just investigating what it is that we believe. The core tenet of our faith is that God's purpose through all of human history has been to redeem a fallen race. God determined that he would send a promised one who would come, and the writer shows that Christ is the fulfillment of that old covenant to Israel, and that there is a great assembly of saints who are witnesses to God's testimony throughout all of history. So whether you're new to Christianity or not, this passage does call us to understand the nature of enduring faith. I think the writer highlights four things in these two verses that we're going to talk about. The first is that it's a race. The second, that there are historical witnesses to this race. And third and fourth, our faith is not fickle, but it's grounded in a definite object and subject. So first off, our race is a faith. Sorry, our faith is a race. Uh, Some of us race having faith that our legs will hold out, and they don't, but that's okay. Our faith is a race. This race isn't short, right? It's a marathon. It is life. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see the, this idea of the imagery of a race. Um, back in 2 Timothy, don't turn there with me, but back in 2 Timothy, Paul writes before his death that, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This passage in Timothy is a personal account of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. 
He's encouraging us to run and race this lifelong marathon. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of us who in the church sometimes just walk, maybe even are just sitting down and taking a breather. But that's not the calling. We're called to run. We're called to run a race that we're supposed to win, and you don't do that by sitting. This also isn't a race that we're running with uncertainty. We're not hopeful that there's a prize at the end. We know that there is a reward, which is eternal life. We run knowing that at the end we will receive that victor's crown of eternal life free from sin. I think this is also important, too, that this race isn't a friendly competition. We're not racing against each other. We're racing against those things that would do us harm, which is sin. The word here in the Greek, and I am not a Greek scholar, the word doesn't imply a light jog or a half-hearted pace. We aren't just out there for a fun run in the morning. The race is a struggle, is what the word actually says. It's a conflict. It's a striving. We're not running because we love running. We're running for the joy of the prize at the end. I think another way of, saying, of translating this word in the Greek is to say, to make progress in one's behavior or conduct. So friends, are, are we making progress by our running? And because it's a race with a reward at the end, we're supposed to run well. No one who wants to run, win a race is going to go out there and run with a 20-pound bag on their back. They're not going to strap weights to their feet. And the writer here, he says, we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, every weight and the sin aren't two ways of saying the same thing. They're actually two distinct ideas. So first off, weights. Weights are the things that are going to slow us down. These could actually be good things. They could be innocent and harmless things. But the adage, good is the enemy of best, is most appropriate here. They're good, but they won't help us in our faith. For the Jewish Christian, these could have been family ties, weighing them down with Jewish traditions or relationships detrimental to their progress of holiness. We know the Jewish believers were experiencing some persecution from their families who didn't like that they left the Jewish faith, and from the non-Jewish culture around them, which would have pressured them to participate in the world. It would have been very easy for them to have gone back to their old religious traditions, but that would be a thing adding to the work of Christ, weighing them down, and not beneficial to their progress. I think for us, it could be work. It could even be our family or entertainment. Things which are not sinful, maybe good in their own right, but they act like a pair of baggy sweatpants or ankle weights. It could be extra-biblical traditions that we grew up with, a temptation to go to legalism and add that to Christ, to value family or cultural traditions above Christ. There are things that are going to trip us up. Sorry, they won't trip us up, but they're going to slow us down and wear us out, keeping us from running for the prize. On the other hand, we have sin. Sin which entangles. Sin is distinct from the weights because sin is something contrary to God's laws. This isn't just something that weighs us down. Sins are the things we do that demonstrate that we have wholeheartedly rejected God's commands and his plans in order for creation. Rather, we choose to serve and worship our own desires instead of God. The word in the Greek actually has the idea of being snared. So inherently, sins are ungodly and they slow us down, but they don't just slow us down. Our sin actually ensnares us and traps us. It'll act like a shackle on our feet and keep us from running the race. If we don't kill our sin, we won't make progress. Or as 
that great theologian said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. When we go on willfully sinning, we're still trying to run the marathon, but it's like we're running a three-legged race, and that thing attached to our leg is a 200-pound dead weight. We're not going to make any progress. I think also the writer here makes it clear that sin isn't an oddity. He said it easily entangles us. Brother and sister, I think we need to beware that we're not, beware of thinking that we're not prone to sinning. Our nature has changed, but we're still susceptible to sin. I think if we even go back to chapter 11 and look at the great saints who are listed, great witnesses of faithfulness, but Noah got drunk shortly after God's deliverance from the flood, which led to the sin of his children. Abraham frequently doubted God's ability to protect his family and his plan and lied. Sarah, in unbelief, mocked the message of the angel of the Lord. Moses himself, the greatest of all prophets, sinned and could not enter the promised land. And the lesson isn't to take away that they sinned and God was okay with it because he wasn't okay with it. The message is to see that these men and women through whom God worked and who we see as witnesses to God's faithfulness were sinners, yes, but they ran the race and they progressed in faith and righteousness as they sought to know God better. In the same way, we too should progress in our pursuit of righteousness as we set aside our sins. Now, to those who might not trust in Christ, who are just interested in what we might be talking about, generic sin aside, I think the author actually has a very specific sin in mind here, the sin of unbelief. It's really what he's been talking about a lot throughout the whole book, is arguing for belief in Christ and against returning to what was prior to that. The sin that really must be laid aside is the sin of unbelief. Because belief in Christ is the singular entry requirement to this race. If we don't believe, we can't run. And if we don't run, we can't receive the prize of the eternal kingdom with God. So if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I ask that you would consider these words today. So that the, our faith is a, a race. Now we'll talk about the witnesses. The witnesses are not like spectators in a stadium, nor are they at the finish line cheering us on. They're actually like statues at a memorial reminding us of great men and women who came before. A few years back, I was in the Philippines for work and had the opportunity to visit the Manila American Cemetery. It's a memorial to all the Americans who lost their lives in the Pacific during World War II. It takes up 150 acres in the heart of Manila, and it contains 17,000 graves and etched in the walls of the memorial are the names of 36,000 Americans missing in action. It reminds everyone who sees it the incredible hardship endured by those who fought for freedom. And this is what that idea of witnesses is. There are those who have come before, their names are etched in the memorial for us to see their faithfulness to God. They show us those who have exhibited godly, perseverant faith, who gained approval through their faith like we read earlier looking forward to the promised seed. Not only do we see the saints listed in Hebrews 11 as witnesses to God's faithfulness, but we're told we need to look at Christ. The writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Another way to translate this is to say, look away from everything else. I think there's something to be said for looking away from something else to look at Christ. Let's go back to our analogy of the race. As a runner, you don't want to look over your shoulder or to the side. Looking too much to the side is going to disrupt your gait. You're going to run slower. In the same way, if we're distracted and look away from the finish line, eternal glory will also slow down. And if we look over our shoulders, that's going to be even worse. 
We'll slow down. We won't see where you're going. And we're probably going to fall. Instead of looking to the finish line, eternal redemption in Christ, I think we often look behind us to our past sins, beliefs, traditions, or way of life. And this is what was happening to the Hebrew believers. They were being persecuted and pressured to look behind them and go back to the Jewish system. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul exhorts the, the church of Philippi, writing, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In the same way, the author of Hebrews reminds us not to look behind, but to press on, knowing that we have a sure reward and eternal inheritance in Christ. Now that we've considered the race and the witnesses, the author calls us to consider one more witness. We talked about that a little bit. Fixing our eyes on Jesus as uh, both who is the one who started our faith, but he is a witness of our faith. He is an object and subject of our faith. Uh, so Christ as the object of our faith. He is the, the thing in which we profess faith in Christ. He is the author and founder of our faith he be, as he began it through his faithful testimony and death. Back in Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul also wrote, that have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. In Christ's perfect life, he honored his father, in his death, he fulfilled the Father's demand for the sacrifice of sins. And in his resurrection, he defeated death. By belief in Christ, we can have forgiveness of sins and be restored to a right relationship with God. Christ's work isn't merely how individuals are restored to a relationship, but by his work, we also look forward to a day when all of creation will be restored. And this is what I mean by Christ being the object of our faith. It is his work that we place our faith in. But Christ hasn't only authored our faith, he's perfected our faith. He humbled himself to the point of death, conquered death, and has seated himself at the right hand of God to be our intercessor or mediator. Where God's wrath once was, we can now experience joy in God through the work of Christ. He sat down at the right hand of God. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament system of sacrifices, this section can lose the weight of its meaning. But after sent into the world through Adam, God established that the punishment of sin was death, but the forgiveness of sins would come through the shedding of blood. The idea of animal sacrifices was, made, uh, was codified in the Levitical law. There were dozens of sacrifices that could be made so that if you read the law, you see that the Jewish priests were always standing, always offering a sacrifice for sins, for themselves, for the nation, and for individuals. But their work was never actually done because the blood of animals is an insufficient sacrifice to cover all the evil that we have and will do. But we believe Christ was perfect. His death was the sacrificed promise that would cover all sins. No longer would the high priest's sacrifice have any meaning whatsoever because Christ has done the ultimate sacrifice. So when the writer says that Christ has sat down at the right hand of God, he's making a clear statement that the priest's work is over. Christ's work is complete, 
and it is greater than the work of the priests, the religious systems, the prophets, and the sacrifices. So we place our faith in the work, the completed work of Christ. But his work on the cross is not just the object of our faith, but Christ himself is the subject of our faith. And this idea of Christ as subject is key to the writer's encouragement to consider him and not grow weary. We have faith in a person, Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the perfect son of God. He is fully God, though he humbled himself to become a man so that he could live and suffer in our place for the punishment of sin. This is the subject of our faith, the perfect person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. He's the subject of our faith by his life example of enduring faith. By his faith, he endured and is sitting down, which enables us to endure. By his faith, we see what can be done and can pursue like faith. If we don't treat Christ as the subject of our faith, we'll miss that his life and his struggles and death are what we look to for encouragement in our life and our struggles. It was because of the shame and disgrace that he endured that he is exalted above every name. Now, though, it's, it's time to talk about our race and not just think about what faith is. The writer draws us into the idea that by knowing Christ as the fulfiller of God's promises and understanding of his life, death, and resurrection, we can be encouraged to emulate the same kind of faith. Let's look at this call of enduring faith. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Recall what I said a few moments ago, that Christ perfected our faith by enduring the hostility of sinners to the point of death, and then conquered death and being raised to God's right hand. When we consider that the sinless Son of God was confronted by hostile men, and he also humbled himself to the point of death for the sake of their souls, how can we not, like Paul, say that we would endure and know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? When we experience hardship, we endure because Christ is the subject of our faithful example. We consider Christ. But consider why Christ endured. He endured hardship for the joy that was set before him. The joy of restoring creation to its right place before God. And the joy of being glorified by the Father. The joy of having a people that were his. I think we need to see here that come, joy, endurance comes in the joy of knowing what is to come. It's something like the pain of labor and childbirth, I would conjecture, though I can't imagine. How does a woman really endure that? I think it's by thinking of the joy of holding your child for the first time, of seeing the wonder that God has brought into the world. Or perhaps uh, you're a runner or a weightlifter, you endure pain and hardship because of the prize, winning a race or setting a record. You don't just do it for the fun of it itself. I think a lot as Christians, we can act as if Christ is a get-out-of-jail-free card. We don't think of heaven as the joy we will have living in eternal glory, sinlessness, and being in the physical presence of God. We forget what will come and become discouraged by the suffering of this world. But in contrast, the writer calls us to endure by becoming like Christ, seeing and looking to the joy of what will be. 
Like I said, endurance comes in the joy of knowing what is to come. We also see here that Christ endured shame at the hands of sinners. He was perfect, hadn't done anything wrong, but he was slandered and murdered. He knew the task before him and looked to that joy of his reward to endure shame. In the same way, our call here is to endure any shame or disgrace for his name by focusing on the eternal joy now. There are some who contend that pursuit of anything for our own gain or joy is selfish, which makes pursuit of a reward sinful, and would argue that pursuing joy, even spiritual joy, is wrong. But I disagree, because I think these promises in Scripture exist to remind us that God is the creator of good things, and he gives those things to those who trust and obey. They might not be in this earth, it might be just the good of eternal life, but that is the greatest good. If we look at James, he writes in chapter 1 that whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. One theologian said that the joy of our salvation is not a selfish joy. It is the joy of sharing in the triumph of eternal righteousness in company with all the redeemed whose salvation, no less than his own, the Christian desires and strives for. That is, our joy is not just in me attaining eternal life with God, but I endure for the joy of eternal life that will come to me and to those who know Christ. And perhaps my endurance shows, other, shows others who Christ is. All right, it's time to uh, land the plane, as it were, which is an apropos statement, I guess. We've talked a lot of, uh, a lot of big ideas, I think. Um, so I think it's important to consider how do we approach this passage and walk away with some things this week that should impact how we live. The first is to know Christ. I said earlier that knowing Christ is the only entry requirement to this race of faith. The writer of Hebrews gives us an exhaustive explanation for who Christ is. And if you still have questions, I encourage you to to go back and continue to read the Bible. This knowledge is good, but unless knowledge results in a relationship with Christ, then it is meaningless. We have to know that Christ is the Son of God promised since the fall, that he is the fulfillment of prophecy given to the world to restore creation, that in his perfect life and sinless death, he took on our sins to be the full and final sacrifice. In his resurrection, he demonstrated the conquering of death and Satan. And in his return to heaven, where he now sits, he demonstrates that he is our mediator to a holy God. Anyone who places their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ has the promise of eternal life. So if you don't know Christ today, if you're unsure, I encourage you to come talk to any of the elders, to Asher. Um, I would be willing to talk to you as well, of course. Secondly, we need to emulate the witnesses. Yes, they were sinners, but they exist as an example of those who endured and demonstrated faith. I encourage you to go back this week and read chapter 11 of Hebrews, and then go back into the Old Testament and read about these individuals who stand as witnesses to the glory of God. They stand as statues of faith to show us how we can endure in faith. But most importantly, emulate Christ, who is also a witness of faith. Third, I think we need to make sure we set aside the things that are slowing us down and obviously do away with our sin. If we, if we know there are ways in which we are sinning, 
we need to confess that and be done with them. But we should prayerfully and thoughtfully consider what things are weighing us down this week. Consider Christ, who founded and finished our faith, so that we can put aside those things to race with endurance. And lastly, don't become weary. The world is full of suffering. We will face struggles and trials, and someday we might even face persecution for our faith. Continue to run the face, faith, sorry, race. If you know Christ or profess Christ, then be in the race. Don't be sitting on the sidelines. And run it and race it for the joy of Christ. When you undergo persecution, don't look back at your old life and think about how things used to be. Look at Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on him and on his work and encourage everyone around you who would know Christ to not be weary. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word and ask that you would um, let your word and not my words impact our lives, that you would show us how to have joy, how to endure sufferings of this world and endure the shame and disgrace that might come when we profess our faith in you, Lord. Go with us this week and help us to declare your name to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.